Good morning. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 1. Friends who are home online with us, we're glad that you're here as well. 2 Kings chapter 1. And just while you're turning, uh, one thing I want to make you aware of today here at the church, 3.30, right here in the sanctuary, we're going to do a hymn sing. Uh, which is more than, we're gonna do more than just sing hymns. We're gonna take time to reflect upon the scriptures, uh, have some readings. And our, our desire in that is not just that we have a good time singing hymns, although we will do that. Our desire is that we are going to reflect on hymns that talk about the three-in-one nature of God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, that we might grow in our awe and our wonder of the very nature of God uh, as he has revealed it through his scriptures and as so many uh, wonderful hymns reflect it. And so just wanted to invite you to that today, uh, 3.30, and we'll have a wonderful time together. So just wanted to extend that invitation to you. So I said, turn to Second Kings. Let me catch you up. The last couple of weeks, we have been... Uh, reflecting particularly around Easter on the resurrection of Jesus, on the crucifixion of Jesus before that, how his sufferings and his resurrection point to him as king. And now we're returning to our series in the books of First and Second Kings. And so maybe you're just joining us post-Easter kind of for the first time. So I wanna make sure that we're all on the same page. The books of First and Second Kings, essentially, if you were gonna say there's, what's the one message throughout these books? It's this, is that no earthly king can be for us what we need Jesus to be as our true and better king. And when we think about what a king is in our life, I wanna make sure that we don't, just because we don't have in our political atmosphere where we live, we don't have kings, right? We have presidents, we have senators, we have governors. We don't have kings. And so sometimes we might have a little difficulty in sort of getting to the nuance of what that means. But scripturally, I just want you to think this way. When we talk about how Jesus is the king we need, I want you to think of a king as those that you trust and follow, so who do you trust? Who do you follow? How do you determine uh, who you trust and follow? We talked about that a little bit on Easter and how the resurrection points us to Jesus as the one we trust and follow. But essentially what we've seen is we've gone through first and now we're gonna begin second kings today. What we've seen is that every earthly king, even the best one, fails to be what we need them to be. So that's what we've been learning. And we've been in this section of the books where the attention turns away from the kings. They're still there, but they almost become the side story for a section of these books. And the main attraction becomes the prophets, Elijah specifically. And then today we're gonna turn and see Elisha coming after Elijah. And the reason that the attention in the books turns to the prophets is that God is essentially saying, the kings keep failing but I am so committed to raising up a voice among my people who will declare that God alone is God that I'm now gonna highlight the prophets, Elijah first, then Elisha, because that's what they essentially are tasked to do. They come on the scene and all of their ministry could be summarized as essentially saying, you're, you're not seeing that Baal and these other false idols, they're not God and the kings are misleading you God himself is God. So that's the essentially kind of the catch-up that I wanted to make sure we did as we got back into the book today. We're picking up with the story of Ahaziah, who is the son of Ahab, who was declared to be, up to this point, the worst king in, in the nation of Israel. He had gone the furthest, uh, af, uh, af, the furthest afar from God's purposes for the nation and for them as a king. And now Ahaziah, after Ahab's death, comes onto the scene. So that's where we pick up the story. But let me pray for us as we prepare our hearts to receive God's word, all right? 
So Lord, as we look at this text, we are looking at a text that speaks to us about spiritual sight and spiritual blindness. So we pray that you would give us eyes to see it. We pray that you would open our hearts to receive it. We pray that you would teach us to trust your word in its authority, in its sufficiency. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would cause nothing in us to resist what you would speak to us about our lives. And we know, Holy Spirit, that you will apply your word to us so that it might not return void or empty, but will bear fruit. And our prayer is that our hearts would be good soil now into which the seed may be sown. So make us tender, make us moldable in your hands so that you'd get glory from us. That's our great desire, our chief end, to glorify you. We want that more than we want comfort, more than we want success, more than we want fame or prestige, power. We want you to get glory through our lives. May that be the final word about who we are, individually and together. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, so for years before coming into this role, I used to do student ministry, worked with a lot of college students, worked with a lot of high school students. One of my favorite games to play in student ministry was blindfolded dodgeball. Now it sounds like, how do you do that? But it's a great game. And here's why, because what you do is you get on a basketball court and you partner up and one partner's blindfolded, the other one is not. And so it's a really wonderful team like building exercise. You learn to listen. By the way, the ladies are way better at blindfolded dodgeball than the men because they listen to the people giving them instruction and the men run off imagining that they're going to figure this out. They literally cannot see, but they're convinced they can win on their own somehow. Right, so we used to play this game. We are playing it at a college retreat. And so you get all the partners are stationed around the edges of the court. There's no boundaries. You're running around with the blindfold on, groping around for balls. And as we're playing this one game, maybe my favorite moment in ministry ever, which probably says something about my competitive nature, but we're playing, we're down to two people, two guys, they're in the arena, their partners are yelling. And we've got like, a, you know, over a hundred people surrounding the court, sort of, you know, like, amped up with excitement about what's gonna happen. And these two individuals, these two young men are groping around on the ground, trying to find a ball while their teammates are yelling at them. These two young ladies are like, go left, go right. It's in front of you, pick it up. And they both get the balls at the exact same moment. The crowd is starting to get excited. They stand up at the exact same moment. And now they have to be pointed in the right direction, but the crowd is so loud that it's very hard to hear their instructions. So they spin in circles like three or four times while the girls shout, no, turn to the right, like 90 degrees. And so they turn, now they're facing each other at the exact same moment. Throw it now, throw it now. They throw the ball from about 10 feet apart from one another. And I kid you not, the balls collide in midair. And there is an explosion, not just of wonderful dodgeballness. There is an explosion, an eruption of yelling from everyone around the court because we can't believe what we've just seen. The people with the blindfolds on have no idea what has happened. They are standing there, not knowing, did I hit them? Did I, I didn't feel that I got hit. Did I get hit? We just stopped the game. It's over. We will never repeat what just happened there. It was unbelievable. One of my favorite moments ever. Here's why I love blindfolded dodgeball. I love it because it's great, like I said, for learning to listen 
and learning to be a teammate and needing someone else. But even more, you know what? It's, a, it's really fun to watch. Like, it's hilarious to watch blindfolded dodgeball. People groping around, not knowing what, where they are oriented, not even knowing. They could be falling off the court. They don't know, trusting someone else. And it's really fun and really funny to watch. That kind of inability to see is fun in a game. But can I tell you something that's not fun or funny at all? Spiritual blindness in your own life. Like when you don't see what God has for you, his ways, his will, his purposes, when you are walking in a kind of blindness where you are hard to the purposes of God, it's all well and good in a game. It is not funny in real life. It is dangerous and it is tragic in real life. As we come to 2 Kings chapter one, we're going to see a man who demonstrates spiritual blindness for us. And as we look at him, our goal today is to learn three lessons about indicators that spiritual blindness might be setting into our own lives so that we might ask, am I growing less able to see, more nearsighted, less able to understand, and less tender to the purposes of God for me? And as we do that, I wanna encourage you to really listen. And then I want you to see the great hope that we have because we have a God who is committed to eradicating spiritual blindness from our lives. It is our great hope, not our own strength, not our own ability to overcome it because you won't even see it when it's in you unless the spirit of God through his word helps you to see it. That's part of the challenge of spiritual blindness is you think you see, Jesus says to the Pharisees in the gospel of John, but because you think you see, you don't see. It's a great danger to the people of God. Now, as we think about that, before I read this section, we've got to answer one question. Now, I want to read chapter one to you in its entirety, share the story with you, and then we'll draw some reflections from that story. But the first question that might be percolating through your mind right now is, can a Christian be spiritually blind? That, that would be an important question to answer, right? If I'm suggesting that you and I as Christians can have a type of blindness that comes into our minds, our eyes, our hearts, we should ask, is that a reality for Christians? And the answer to that is both yes and no, right? And let me tell you why I say that. So let's look at two texts. We'll put them on the screen here for you, or you can flip in your Bible. So yes and no. Here's a way that Christians cannot be spiritually blind. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 4. This says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Note that he doesn't say blinded the eyes. He says blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Friends, if you've come to know Christ, if you come to trust in him, have a sincere faith in him, believe the truth of the proclamation of the gospel that in Jesus, who is very God of very God, we have God's son who lived perfectly, died as a substitution for the death that you and I deserve because of our sin and rose again from the grave, has ascended to the right hand of the father and will return. If you've believed that, you have had the blinders taken off your eyes. Praise God. You and I were blind and he made us see. 
We didn't usher ourselves out of spiritual blindness, but he has. In that sense, everyone who is in the family of God, who is reconciled to God through Christ, is not and cannot be spiritually blind in that sense. That's an important thing to remember and recognize. And it's a great hope that should spiritual blindness, nearsightedness begin to come into our lives as followers of Jesus, that there is hope that ultimately we have had the blinders taken off our eyes. Now, let's ask the question, if that's the case, then perhaps we should say Christians cannot be spiritually blind, but Peter tells us that we can be. So listen to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 9. This is the, if that was the no, we can't be. Here's the yes, we can be in a different way. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 9, written to believers, which again, let's remember, as we're looking at Old Testament texts, one of the things that we're always thinking about when something applies to the nation of Israel, the best and most direct application of that is to not the world in general now, but the best application of that about spiritual blindness is to the church, the people of God, the people of God under the old covenant, the nation of Israel, people of God under the new covenant, the church, right? And so how does that apply to Christians? Here's what 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 9 says. For whoever lacks these qualities, and he's just given a list of qualities. Some of them are love and self-control, godliness, steadfastness. There's this whole list where he said, hey, make every effort to add to your faith in Jesus all these virtues, all these character traits. He says, if you're not diligent in adding those, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is what? Blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Do you see what Peter's saying, church? Do you see it? What he's saying is you may be someone who has been washed from your former sins. That's true of you. You are someone who's had the blinders taken off because you've seen the light of the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus. And yet there's a way in which you or I could be described as blind. So nearsighted that you and I might be called blind. In other words, there is a, without attention to the purposes of God and our relationship to him, there is a type of hardness of heart, a type of inability to see what he wants for us, a lack of tenderness towards him that can come into our lives. And it is a real danger for real Christians. Do we agree? That's what I need you to see. So that's the answer. That's the yes and the no to this question. Now, as we look at our text, we're gonna gain some insights about spiritual blindness. And you're gonna see more than three here. I just wanna highlight three for you. So let's read the text together today. Second Kings chapter one, beginning in verse one, says this. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, go inquire of Baalzebub, the God of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, is it because there's no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baalzebub? the God of Ekron. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. The messengers returned to the king and he said to them, why have you returned? And they said to him, there came a man to meet us and said to us, go back to the king who sent you and say to him, thus says the Lord, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? 
Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. He said to them, what kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered him, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. Then the king sent to him a captain of 50 men with his 50. He went up to Elijah who was sitting on the top of a hill and said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. But Elijah answered the captain of 50. If I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Again, the king sent to him another captain of 50 with his 50. And he answered and said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. But Elijah answered them, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Again, the king sent the captain of a third 50 with his 50. And the third captain of 50 went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him. O man of God, please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the former two captains of 50 men with their 50s, but now let my life be precious in your sight. Then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with him, do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king and said to him, thus says the Lord, because you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron, is it because there is no God in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So he died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, because Ahaziah had no son. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles, the kings of Israel? So now as I read that chapter to you, and in a minute, I'm gonna summarize chapter two for you and draw one lesson from that as well. But as I read that, do you see some hard-heartedness there? Yes? Do you see some inability to learn some lessons that might be there that might indicate spiritual blindness? Well, let's learn a few lessons from Ahaziah. So here's the first lesson about spiritual blindness. It's this. Spiritual blindness prevents us from learning the lessons of the past. Spiritual blindness prevents us from learning the lessons of the past. So as I said, Ahaziah is Ahab's son. And Ahab was considered up to this point, the worst king in the history of the Northern tribes, the Northern uh, kingdom in Israel, right? And so if you remember kind of tracing back in our story, Ahab had had interactions, regular interactions with Elijah. One of those interactions was in 1 Kings 18 and 19 with the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel, where Elijah defeats the prophets of Baal fire comes down from heaven. Ahab goes and complains to Jezebel, his wife, who is really kind of the driving force behind Baal worship among in the nation of Israel. And then Elijah has a moment where he's afraid for his life and he runs away. And we saw God comfort him, provide for him, restore him into the work that God had called him to do. But here's the point of all that. As his son, as Ahab's son, Ahaziah would have known about this story. He would have known exactly what had happened. Do you imagine if you're Ahab and you come home from a long day of work and what took place was that fire came down from heaven and consumed an offering on an altar, that you might go home and tell your family about it? 
Yeah, he tells Jezebel, we're pretty sure Ahaziah has heard about it. Not only that, but verse eight in this text indicates he knows who Elijah is because his fashion choices are enough to alert Ahaziah to the fact. He wore a garment of hair. I don't know what that is, but that sounds awful. And a belt of leather. And he says, oh, it's Elijah. In other words, he knows who Elijah is. And in spite of knowing who he is, and in spite of knowing his interactions with his dad, he fails to learn the lessons of the past and he fails to learn his own lessons. How many times does he have to send captains of 50? One should be enough. He sends them three times. First of all, this is a terrible guy to follow. Second of all, spiritual blindness prevents you from learning lessons from the past handed down, and it prevents you from learning lessons in your own life. Because rather than see them for what they are, you're so determined to walk in a certain direction or in a certain way that you cannot see what's right in front of your face. I mean, you and I read this story and it seems pretty self-evident that he's making mistakes. Yes, would you agree? And we all, by the way, you probably put yourself in this and you say, well, if I was Ahaziah, I would not be that dumb. And I hope that's true. But how many times in your own life do you keep doing the same thing over and over in spite of getting a bad result? How many times do you know you're walking in opposition to the way God wants you to go, but you keep going? How many times do I do that? How many times in your marriage do you keep the same patterns of communication and the same patterns of conflict rather than doing something different so that you might get a different result? Here's what I want you to see, friends. Failure to learn from the past, whether it be our past mistakes or others, as it's handed down generation to generation, failure to learn is an indicator that some spiritual blindness might be setting in. It's an indicator that spiritual blindness might be setting in. And you and I need to see that. If that's taking place in our lives, I mean, you look at Ahaziah and you think, how blind does this guy have to be to not learn the lessons? I mean, it's three times fire comes down from heaven, wants to consume an altar that's soaked in water and then two more times to consume his soldiers and he still doesn't seem to learn. Friends, if you find yourself repeating the same patterns, the same let me say the same sinful patterns, and let me clarify here, I'm not saying that if you have a, a, a sin that you struggle with repetitively, I'm not suggesting that you are spiritually blind. I am suggesting if you don't fight against that sin, and see incremental sanctification in your life where you are incrementally walking towards more and more righteousness, that you are in danger. You, if you continue to willfully walk in that pattern without repentance, without turning, without saying, I need to go in a different way, there is a danger of that hardness of heart taking hold of you. And boy, would I wanna save you from that. Respond to that differently. So that's the first lesson. <clears throat> the second lesson we see in this story is that spiritual blindness causes us to seek the wrong counsel. It causes us to seek the wrong counsel. And this is the most obvious lesson probably from the story because it's where we begin. Ahaziah gets sick. He falls through a lattice. We don't know exactly what his ailment is. If he you know, broke something, if he's just gotten a fever because he's you know, really hurt himself, but he's sick and he wants counsel. What's gonna happen to me? And who does he send to? He sends to someone named Beelzebub, which is the God in Ekron, in the city of Ekron. That's a Philistine city, which means he is sending to a foreign nation, to a foreign God. And Elijah's question to him is what? Is it because there's no God in Israel? 
that you are doing this? In other words, Elijah actually is trying to bring mercy. If you remember Ahab, in in spite of all his failings and in in spite of all his wickedness, has a moment, a very brief one, of repentance where he's confronted with the truth and he shows actual repentance, confession, sorrow. And as a result, God's mercy over actually comes into his life. There is mercy even for Ahab, which by the way, when you and I read that, we're supposed to be like, there is no one beyond mercy. If true confession and repentance are brought before the Lord, he is eager to show mercy. Praise God. Are we as eager to show mercy as God is? Just a little side question for you. Are we as eager to show mercy or do we want payback? Oh, that we would be like God. Friends, if it's your first Sunday, but maybe you've been running from God for 20 years and for some reason, today's your first Sunday back in church. God invites you to receive his mercy. He is not waiting for you to go like, well, I need to kind of get a couple, you know, a little track record of some faithfulness going here and then maybe I can get some mercy because then I've shown my, first of all, you're not gonna do that. The way you develop faithfulness is that you cry out to God for mercy first. And then he will usher you into faithfulness. You're not gonna do it on your own. You just trust me. Because a lot of us have tried it. How many, yep, tried it. Didn't work. Don't have the power, don't have the strength. But God can guide us into faithfulness. God is eager to show mercy. That's why he sends Elijah. That's why there's a confrontation. Because there is a God in Israel. That's the answer to that question. There is a God in Israel. And he is eager to show you mercy, Ahaziah. Ahaziah refuses to learn from that. But friends, the thing that I want you to see is that he's seeking out the wrong counsel. Rather than seek out God, God, what is the end result of this gonna be? What do I need to do? He seeks out Baalzebub. Now, there's a little thing there that you're not gonna, you can't catch in the English version of the text, but here it is. Baalzebub means Lord of the flies. That's what that means. There is no record of an actual God worshiped in Philistia or in any other nation going by the name of Baalzebub but there is a Baal and that means Baal the prince. So the most commentators think that the Bible's doing a little tongue-in-cheek thing here for us and going, yeah, yeah, we know you call him Baal the prince. We're gonna call him Baal, Lord of the flies. That's how worthless this God is. He's God of what? Some flies, right? That's the idea here. So the Bible's making fun of Baal. That's what it's doing. And what it's meant to say is like, who would seek out the Lord of the flies when the Lord of hosts is available? Who would seek out for counsel a God of insects when you have the God of the universe available to you? And by the way, he's not even the God of the flies because God is the God of the flies. That's the point the scriptures are making there. But here's the thing, friends, spiritual blindness, an indicator that it might be taking hold of our hearts and minds and eyes is that we find ourselves seeking out the wrong counsel. So can I ask you, who are you listening to? Who are you listening to? And not just who do I get sort of my political news from or who do I get my, where do I read the daily news from? Like who actually is the person you seek out for wisdom about how to walk through life as a, as a follower of Jesus, as, as in your job, as a parent, as a student, as a child, two parents, who are you listening to? Is who you're listening to an indicator of spiritual blindness or an indicator of spiritual sight? Let me say just two things. People who are 
who spiritually see are so saturated in God's word that they recognize the truth when they hear it because they look to God's word first. And then when they seek out counsel, they recognize whether that counsel is speaking something that, that, that takes the principles of scripture, takes the truth of scripture and brings it to bear upon the moment, upon the situation. And because the spirit then lives in us, we say, yes, I recognize that that is true. Or I recognize that as false. That is false. That's the first thing, being saturated in the scriptures so that you can see. But the second thing I wanna say there in terms of who are you listening to is, can I just point out three qualities that make someone really worth listening to? Humility, a track record of faithfulness, and love, which Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13 is the greatest character trait of believers that we should possess, love. Are the people you're listening to humble? There's no human counselor that's perfect. They, there will always be a need for saying, I was wrong and I need to change directions in any person, including those that you might turn to for counsel. So when they're wrong, are they, do they admit it? And will they change direction? Are they humble? Or do they presume to have all the answers and be authoritative at all times? Humility, a track record of faithfulness. Has this person shown a track record of godly wisdom? Is there fruit? Does Look at the fruit of, look, here is the inescapable spiritual test. What fruit is produced from the life of the person you're living, you're listening to? Is it love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? Is that produced when they give counsel? Is it in their life? Do you see it? If they are creating other things than that, don't listen to them. That is not wise counsel. No one can fake fruit forever. And when the fruit is rotten, it is not wise counsel. When the fruit is good over a track record of faithfulness over time, listen to that person. Like kids, students, if your mom and dad have this long track record of faithfulness, even when you get to that stage of life where you just don't wanna hear anything they have to say, listen to them. The last one is love. Is this person's life marked by a sincere love for God that they display in sacrificial choices? They sacrifice their time and their money and their energy to serve him because they love him. And is there, are they marked by love for God's people and love for their neighbor? I get worried sometimes that, that you as my people are listening to the wrong people. I don't know whether you are or you aren't, okay? And I'm not declaring, I'm not saying about myself that I'm the right person. I just get, I get concerned for churches, our church, all believers, that we would listen to wise counsel, godly counsel, because when we listen to the wrong voices, it's an indicator and it's, a, it's causing us to grow more spiritually blind, more spiritually hard, rather than tender before the Lord to walk in his ways. So, and I say that because that will, I, I, I can promise you this. I will carry that sort of anxiety with me for the rest of my life. There will never be a day where I, as your shepherd, don't worry about that. And I think that's okay because Paul says, I have on top of all these beatings and difficulties I've been through, I have within me the daily anxiety, he says, for the churches of God, for the people of God, that they would walk in righteousness. I feel that for you. I want you to listen to the right 
voices. So just measure, measure, love, humility, track record of faithfulness, okay? Third lesson about spiritual blindness. Third lesson we learn in this text. And like I said, there's more here, but this is, these are the three I wanna highlight for you. Spiritual blindness causes us to overestimate our own power and underestimate God's. It causes us to overestimate our own power and underestimate God's. Did you notice in the story, again, Ahaziah three times sends these representatives. Now go back and think, put yourself in Ahaziah's shoes for a moment. You are the king, you are sick, you've turned to the wrong council. Elijah sends word to you and says, you're listening to the wrong council. There is a God in Israel, you should be turning to him. What is your response in that moment? Now, remember, you know about the fire from heaven and the altar. You know about Elijah's power or God's power displayed through Elijah. And so in that moment, if you're Ahaziah, here's what you decide. 50 men ought to be enough. I'm gonna intimidate and scare and maybe even kill. I don't know if that's his goal. But once you've seen fire sent from heaven, do you think 50 men is anything compared to the power of God? And then, as if to completely blow our minds about his absolute blindness, he does it again. And a third time, as he is so blind that he cannot see that the power of man does not compare to the power of God. He could send 550 and it wouldn't matter. 50 upon 50 upon 50. The only person who shows any spiritual sight other than Elijah and Elisha in this text is the third captain. Did you notice how he approaches Elijah? Yeah, he learned the lesson. He said, well, the two guys before me, it didn't go real well. So he shows up and he says, did you notice what he said to him? He said, please. He shows love for his people. He says, please, please count my life and my soldiers' lives precious. Please have mercy. And he says, I am what? Not Ahaziah's servant. I am your servant. Count your servants. In other words, he says, I'm siding with you. <laughs> because I have eyes to see what's happening here. He sees, his king does not. And friends, another indicator of spiritual blindness, <clears throat> another indicator of spiritual blindness for us is that we think that we have power that can bring things about. Now there's two directions that can take, okay? And let me make sure I make this clear. Because one is like what's happening here with Ahaziah, where he is essentially standing in opposition to God. God is saying, go this direction. Ahaziah is going, nope, I'm going this direction. And so there is a way in which we can do that. And it leads to further spiritual blindness, where we would say, I'm opposing the purposes of God. And I'm overestimating my ability to essentially undo or stop what God wants to do. That sounds pretty foolish, yes? Here's the other direction that can go. I can actually be pointed in the same direction as God. I can be going the way God wants me to go, but I can be doing it in my own strength. And when I do that, I am still overestimating my own power and underestimating God's. And it is still an indicator of spiritual blindness. I don't have to be walking in opposition to the purposes of God. I can be on the right trajectory and doing it in the wrong power. You with me? Does that make sense? Can I give you two indicators that might be the case? Because sometimes it's hard to know, right? It's like, I'm, I'm trying to serve the Lord. I'm trying to exert my effort, my energy. That is right and good. So how do I know when I'm doing it in my own power versus doing it in the power the Lord provides? Like that just seems like a nice turn of phrase. Um, but 
I mean, doesn't it still mean I, I wake up early and I, and I exert effort? Yes, it certainly does. Two indicators that we're trusting in our own strength rather than God's. Number one, it's overworking. Overworking. When you don't place the right boundaries around your work life, because either you believe one, that's what gives me an identity and value, or you believe I will make it happen, what the success or the, the promotion or the financial you know, windfall, I will bring that about through working, 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 because I can do it. That kind of overworking is an indicator that no Sabbath, no rest, no stopping and saying, it's God who provides, not me. I work hard. Now, can I just say, because for a rising generation, let me say, um, don't, don't lean back on this one before you've actually worked hard, okay? Well, Pastor Trent said, shouldn't overwork, all right? Like, I think, no, this is, this is my own opinion, right? Just opinion, so you can leave it behind, okay? But like, I really think somewhere around my generation, so I say me, I'm 45, 40-something and younger, all the pastors and, and, and people I knew that were older than me, I do think they had a real problem with overworking and trying to do things in their own strength. And I think somewhere around my generation, we saw that problem and we started underworking a little bit and acting like we worked hard, but we really didn't. Now, I, again, I'm not, that's a, I don't mean to make that a blanket statement, but so I just wanna say hard work is good. Be diligent, work hard, but have wise boundaries around your work life so that you are diligent and you work hard and you go after the things God has given you to do. But then if you're overworking, if you have none of those parameters, if you have no Sabbath rest, if you have this sense that like, I will make it happen, that's an indicator that you're trusting in your own strength, not in the strength of the Lord. And the second indicator is prayerlessness. If I approach the work of God, again, pointed in the right trajectory, but I approach it and there's prayerlessness in my going after it, it's an indicator I'm trusting me, not the Lord. I'm saying, I'll make it happen. I'll, I'll, I'll get it done. I'll be diligent enough or wise enough. Or, and you won't. So overworking and prayerlessness, we could give others, but I think those are pretty good ones. So I want you to think about that. So those are three indicators of spiritual blindness. I'd ask you to just let the Spirit of God speak to you about those. Hear them, really. I mean, who am I listening to? Who's my counsel? Am I learning from the lessons of the past or not? Am I overestimating my own power? But now let's turn to the hope that we have because God is committed. He is committed to eradicating spiritual blindness from his people. Praise God. He doesn't want to leave you there. Let me show you how we know that. So this text, if you're following the flow, let me summarize chapter two for you. Here's the big lesson of chapter two. We're gonna hand off the role of prophet from Elijah, who's gonna be taken into heaven by chariots of fire. Best way to go out ever. To Elisha. And the whole message of chapter two is God saying, I am so committed to having someone here to declare that I am God. To, in other words, to eradicate spiritual blindness from my people and Help them see that I keep raising up an Elijah and then an Elisha. Elisha's very life is an indicator to us that God cares about eradicating spiritual blindness. Does that make sense? So what happens in chapter two is that there seems to be this knowledge. There's these prophets that seem to know it. Elijah seems to know it. Elisha seems to know it. 
that Elijah is going to be taken up into heaven that day. So God must have spoken to them. So these prophets keep coming up to Elisha and they say, do you know that today your master is going to be taken up into heaven? He says, I know, be quiet. In other words, there seems to be this grief in him. He's going to lose Elijah. They keep going from town to town. So they go from one place to another to another across the Jordan River. Elijah parts the Jordan River with like his cloak. And then they walk across and these other prophets are like watching from a hilltop. And Elijah says to Elisha, what do you want to ask from for, what do you want to ask for from me before this whole thing's done, before I'm out of here? And he says, would you give me a double portion of the anointing that's upon you? Now he doesn't mean twice as much. He's referring to like, the Old Testament law where the oldest son gets twice the inheritance of the youngest son or the next sons. So if there's two sons and they're both inheriting from the father, the oldest gets two thirds and the youngest gets one third, right? He gets twice as much. And so he's essentially saying, let me be like the oldest son. Let me get the double portion, right? And so he's essentially asking, let me have, let me like wear your authority. Let me have it. And so there's an interesting thing about spiritual sight because what does Elijah say to Elisha? If you see me when I'm taken up from you, he says, you've asked a really hard thing, actually. But if you see me when I'm taken up from you, then you will have it. In other words, if you are what? Diligent with your sight. If you will look for the thing that God is doing. And Elisha is so tenacious. Elijah actually keeps trying to send him away. I'm gonna go over here. You stay here. No, 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 no. I'm not doing that. He stays with him no matter where he goes. It's like he's glued to him. <laughs> he's like, I want God's purposes so much in my life. You will not get me to move an inch from you. I'm gonna be right in your shadow. The dust that kicks off your sandal, is gonna land on my feet. That's how committed I am to, to receiving God's work in my life and to seeing what God is up to. And so then the rest of the chapter, that happens. Elijah's taken up, Elisha sees it. And then there's a couple of miracles that are performed that indicate that Elijah's power is now on Elisha. He parts the Jordan. He heals some water that's making people sick. And then in one of the strangest stories in the whole Old Testament, a bunch of young kids make fun of him for being a prophet of God and some bears come out and maul them. All of that is to indicate that Elisha is God's chosen servant. He has the authority on him. So Elisha's life speaks to us that God is committed to eradicating spiritual blindness. Now, let me say two lessons we can learn from that. Number one, we can be like Elisha. We can be the servants of God who help eradicate spiritual blindness. And what that, and just one lesson about what that takes, one thing we see in Elisha is that tenacity. Do you want to see? Do you want to see the purposes of God? Do you want to declare the purposes of God? Do you want to be used by God? Tenaciously go after it. Long to be like Elisha. Be like Elisha with Elijah. I am not God. I'm looking at you and I'm not gonna be deterred and I'm not gonna be dissuaded. I am wanting to be about what you are about. That kind of tenacity to say, I wanna see what you're doing. The second thing, and more important, is that we have, and this is no surprise, because I want you to keep seeing how the Old Testament is pointing us forward to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the one that all of Scripture points to. Elisha's life is pointing us to Jesus because even in a greater way than Elisha tells us that God is committed to eradicating spiritual blindness, the ultimate message from God that he is committed to eradicating spiritual blindness among his people is that he has sent Jesus into the world. Let me show you this now because I want you to treasure him. 
Don't walk out of here with some moral lessons, okay? Treasure the king. Listen to who he is. Because first of all, we see that Jesus is God's message to us, that he's committed to eradicating any spiritual blindness that would come to us, both the kind, the spiritual blindness that prevents us from seeing the gospel itself, that Jesus is God and that we can be reconciled to God through him. He is here to eradicate that. For those of you who do not believe, he wants to open your eyes. And for you, believer, who might find some of these things setting into your heart, some of that hardness, some of that blindness, some of that nearsightedness, he wants to eliminate that from your life. And here's how we know that through Jesus. Number one, Jesus is not just able to give us sight. He is the one who shows us what God is. In him, we see God. What is the object of spiritual sight? What is the thing spiritual sight aims to see? God himself, who he is. Well, in Jesus, we see him. John chapter 14, verse nine, the words of Jesus. Whoever has seen me has seen who? The father. Think about that for a moment. A human being walking on the earth declared that when you saw him, you saw God. That is enormous. If you know Jesus, you see God when you see him. The second thing we see is not just that in seeing him, we see the ultimate object of all spiritual sight, is that he himself has true, perfect spiritual sight that he can impart to us. Listen to John chapter five, verse 19 and 20. It says, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. So right there, that would be good because we go, awesome, Jesus is committed to seeing what the father is doing and doing it. But what if he only sees part of what the father is doing? Then maybe he'd miss some stuff. Maybe there'd be something he couldn't show us that we would need to know. So he only does what the father, what he sees the father doing. That's awesome. But is there more? And there is. You're thinking, yeah, I know you wouldn't have said that if there wasn't more. He see, but only what he sees the father doing. Now listen, for whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Do you see the two parts? Jesus says, I will only do what I see the father doing. In other words, I, I see what the father's doing. Okay, well, Jesus, do you see part of what the father's doing? And he says, no, no, the father loves the son and shows him how much of what he's doing? All that he is doing. In other words, Jesus possesses perfect spiritual sight. As we follow him, he has that to give us, yes? If you think, how do I, how do I see? Jesus has sight to offer. And then lest we think, well, what if I can't access it? Let's remember what he said in Matthew 28, verse 20, the great commission. He told us, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, which is awesome and a command to be followed. And that would be enough, but he doesn't stop there. He says, and what? And lo, I am with you always unto the end of the age. In other words, not, I'm not with you for a year, two years, five years, 20 years. I'm with you until I come back. He's saying, I'm both going away, but I'm also with you always. So in other words, what he's saying is if you lack spiritual sight, if you find spiritual blindness beginning to take hold, there is not a 20-step process by which you earn spiritual sight. 
one step. Turn to him, he's right next to you. Just turn to Jesus, seek him. Say to him, I need you to help me see. And he will respond and answer. Friends, I want you to hear me so much. This is not for like spiritual giants. This is like spiritual 101. Just turn to him. He is merciful and gentle and invites you, invites you to receive sight. Man, he doesn't have to come from far away. He's right there. So now listen, friends, let's conclude. I just want to read you from Isaiah 55 to conclude this whole thing. And I just want you to hear the compassion of God, the will of God to help us see. All we need to do is seek him and he will respond to us. So listen, Isaiah 55, verses six through 13. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Do you see it, friends? He's saying, seek me. I am full of compassion. I will pardon. And not only that, you have no concept of my ways. And we might go, oh, well, then how could we know you? And he says, no, I'm sending my word to declare my ways into the earth and it will produce fruit. It will yield just like water on the earth that causes the seed to grow. My word is coming to you. Yes, my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts, but I'm sending you. I'm telling you as you seek me, I extend myself to you. I love to reveal myself to you. Don't hear my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And God going, I am so distant from you and you can't know me because the very next word is like water that is sent to the earth. You with me? I pour myself out to you. Then listen, what's the result? What's the result? For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills, in other words, the creation before you shall break forth into singing. They will see the joy and peace of the people of God and they will go, yes, as another part of God's creation. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. It glorifies God. It makes a name for the Lord when his people seek him and he responds by pouring himself out so that he produces joy and peace in their lives. Let's pray. So Father God, we thank you for the invitation to seek you. You are indeed high above us. All of your ways, all of your thoughts, higher than we can fathom. And yet you in your mercy reveal yourself to us. You water the earth with your word. You water our hearts and our minds so that we do not need to be blind. 
so that we might actually see. And what mercy it is on your part. We love you. Help us now, Father. We look to you. We seek you. Would you receive our praises? That's part of our seeking of you is that we offer you praises because you're the only one worthy of them. You're the only right direction for that praise. And so we give it to you. Now grab our hearts, even as we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.